This season of the Chefs Manifesto podcast is brought to you by the Crop Trust. With more than 15 years working globally to safeguard our agricultural biodiversity, the Crop Trust has been a strong advocate for greater long-term resilience in our food systems. Through an endowment fund, the Trust is working with partners to secure the most important international, regional and national collections of crop diversity in perpetuity, as well as the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, the world's backup facility for seeds. In short, the Crop Trust's work comes down to one simple vision, ensuring the basis of our food is safeguarded forever. For more information, follow the Crop Trust on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, or visit their website at croptrust.com. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is is life. life. A very warm welcome to the third season of the Chef's Manifesto podcast, produced and hosted in collaboration with the Crop Trust and Food Forever. I'm Lorna Maserko, a former prima ballerina turned international celebrity chef, award-winning cookbook author and brand ambassador based in Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a great pleasure for me to be one of the three amazing chef hosts in this third Chef's Manifesto podcast season, promoting sustainable cooking as a way to build stronger food systems and achieve good food for all. In this season, we focus on one particular thematic area of the Chef's Manifesto, the protection of biodiversity. In each episode, we spotlight one diverse and resilient crop, talking to chefs who are working and cooking with those ingredients and to experts who give us valuable insights from a scientific perspective. In this first two episodes, Chef Alejandra introduces us to tuba potato and to the camel of crops sorghum. Chef Tom in the third episode chatted about coffee with his podcast guests. And finally, last time we took a closer look at a fascinating root, the sweet potato. Today in episode five, we will discuss what is considered an ancient grain millet. Millets have two types that are eaten widely throughout Africa and Asia, finger millet and pearl millet. Finger millet is an incredibly hardy cereal grain able to grow in highland areas with arid climates throughout Africa and Asia. Uganda is the highest producer of this tough, easy-to-store grain, with India also upscaling their crop production throughout the southern states and part of the Himalayas. Finger millet is best known for its essential amino acids and can be ground to bake breads, porridge and even for brewing beer. Pearl barley is more widely grown than finger millet, tolerating extreme hot, dry and marginal weather conditions. It is a staple in countries with these climates such as Sudan, Angola, northern Namibia and the state Rajasthan in India. This crop is grown by millions of the world's poorest farmers in areas such as Mauritania, Sudan, and Southern Africa. 
The pearl seedling is quite remarkable, germinating rapidly and extending its far-reaching roots to find a water source where there is none apparent from the surface. Its ability to withstand extreme heat and thrive despite drought makes it an important crop for the future. Today, I'm super excited to talk to Chef Vanshika Bhatia, who will share her story on how she is featuring millets in her zero-waste kitchen in Gurugram, India. We will also be joined by our expert for this season, Dr. Shivali Sharma, the theme leader for pre-breeding at the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics in Hyderabad. But first, I'd like to introduce to you Chef Mahadi Itzueng from South Africa, who is here with us to tell us more about how she is cooking with millet in her kitchen and how this crop is so important to her cultural heritage. Chef Mohadi has worked in the food industry for more than 15 years. After training in New York at Peter Kemp Cooking School and then returning to South Africa, she was snapped up by Woolworths as a food works chef. In 2000, she opened Locha Kitchens and Cocktails, where she worked as the executive chef and has ever since worked on introducing South Africans to Pan-African cuisine. Mohadi is a creative entrepreneur, champions several startups brands and as part of her international advocacy has represented the chef's manifesto at various events. Chef Mahadi, a very warm welcome to the podcast and I can't wait to dig in and hear what you have to say. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this chat. Fantastic. Now, millets are an important part of your heritage. Can you tell us about this and a little about how millets are viewed culturally speaking in Southern Africa? Well, millets from um, especially pearl millets, because as you know, there's uh, different kinds of millets that are grown in Africa. So there's the pearl millets and there's um, finger millets. So Southern Africa, we grow pearl millets and apparently they're part of our indigenous crops because they were found in Saharan Desert, in the West Saharan Desert, 4,000 years ago. And because of their drought resistance, they're able to grow and grow with very little rainfall. So over the years, I don't know what happened with our production of millets, but we in the Southern African region of, of Africa have kind of almost stopped growing the millets to a point where very few people know about millets and know about them being part of our heritage. So if you look at some of the recipes around millets in Southern Africa, especially in areas like KZN, Limpopo, in Limpopo, it's called Leotza. I mean, if it's got a petty name, it means it's been there forever. And in, in KZN, it's called Unyawoti. And part of the recipes that come from those areas is like beer, which is used in our rituals, in our cultural and spiritual rituals. So we make our malt beer from it for celebrations. Um, we make mutoho, uh, which is porridge. Samp and beans was actually millet and beans and sorghum and beans because those were the grains that were growing there naturally before maize came into our plates. And uh, the interesting thing for me is how over the years, 
where millets were used in our cultural practices, maize is now used. So for instance, maize came in and replaced millets purely because um, maize is easier to process as opposed to millets. Millets, they're strong and they're hardy. It's a very hardy um, grain, but processing it and removing the millets from the actual core, the husk is very, very difficult and labor intensive. So over the years, corn became an easier one to grow, but corn, as we know, is not drought resistant. And, and if there's no uh, rain, which we had uh, a few years ago, we had a drought a few years ago and the maize production went down. So it meant that a lot more people weren't fed in those years. Whereas if we had gone back to using millets, uh, millets grow even when there's no rainfall. You know, we could have covered that drought season very well. So what's happened now is that because millet played such an important role in our cultural practices and we weren't growing it, for instance, sampan beans would have been militant beans. So they replaced that with corn. Even in our our cultural beers, when we make our traditional beers, what goes in there is actually corn. It's, it's maize meal now, maize meal and sorghum or maize meal, whereas before it was millet and sorghum. So it has played an important role in, in us culturally, in feeding us, but also in our spiritual and cultural practices. But obviously over the years, because the millets weren't grown as much and they're only grown subsistently by small scale farmers, it's become one of those ingredients that are completely forgotten and they've left us in our cultures but in terms of what they are and you know the the history that they carry in our recipes uh, millets are still very important very very interesting now you know uganda is known to have the spirit of millet and that's because it's grown and celebrated quite a lot in uganda um which is obviously in north africa tell us about that spirit of millet and how they've celebrated millet well, the spirit of millet, if you understand, um, Uganda is one of the countries that grow millet and they grow uh, finger millets. Finger millets, although they're not as drought resistant as the pearl millet, but they are also a big part of that area. Economically, it's one of those crops that supports Uganda economically. So because millets play such an important economic role, they're put in a very high place in Ugandan culture, even in celebrations. I mean, when there's a harvest, they have harvest celebrations and feasts using millet for cakes, for breads, for their beers. Um, so it's a really big crop in Uganda. So the spirit of millet in Uganda literally refers to how the millet are supporting not only the country economically, but also socially in terms of they are the main crop that is celebrated in Uganda and it's eaten in Uganda. So the spirit of millet in Uganda is real. It's cultural, but it's also economic. It would be quite interesting to actually taste and see how they utilize millet as opposed to how we kind of in, inhabited corn, I guess, as, as you said in the beginning. Now, often food that grows well together can be served well together. And a lot of chefs work with this principle in their kitchens. Now, could you tell us a little bit how millet is grown in the eastern part of South Africa, so KwaZulu-Natal, along with the Bambara nuts? As you understand, the Bambara nuts, they're ground nuts, so they grow underground. And cow peas, for instance, are beans, they grow outside the ground. So Bambara nuts, if you grow Bambara nuts, they add nitrogen into the ground, which is what makes them good for the earth, and they are a perfect crop, really, and it's drought-resistant. When you grow Bambara nuts, which adds nitrogen, to the ground, it actually feeds into the millet. If you're growing it side by side with millet, it actually gives you a better crop 
a better millet crop. So for the subsistence farmers, what they've done, I think it's traditionally that's how they've always been grown. I guess they understand that the groundnuts add nitrogen into the ground, making the ground or the earth fertile. Um, for the millets to produce the best millets and to, you know, to feed off the groundnuts. So they're actually paired together. And in most of the recipes, like I said, it would be bambara nuts and millets together, almost like a samp, like a samp and beans of sorts. So the beans would be the bambara nuts and the samp part would be the millets. So even when they're cooked, they're cooked together purely because of that. It's amazing how those two indigenous crops, we're actually losing them in terms of our plates now as Southern Africa, Africans. Those are the crops that actually have been with us for so long to a point where they grow together and they pair off together, even in the ground. So it's amazing that those kind of crops have been forgotten and were replaced by maize, which is not so sustainable and earth friendly. Every time we go back and learn about and educate ourselves about the ingredients. The ingredients, they continue to teach us amazing insights. They're giving us so much insight about even just plain things as farming. Something as simple as farming is like, if you grow these together, you'll get a, the best harvest or the be you know what I'm saying? Um, so it's almost like the ingredients themselves are teaching us about how to even grow them and how to be in balance with them and how to grow them sustainably. It's almost like the earth is teaching us through these ingredients. I guess the important question now, Chef Mokhari, is how do we bring it back? How do we make things like bambara nuts and millet sexy, you know, and also accessible? You know, how do we, as chefs, because we have a voice, how do we bring these ingredients back to the table? Because essentially people eat what they're told to eat or what, what they have around them. And so... If you can't find millet or you don't understand the history or it just doesn't look sexy enough or you don't know how to pair it, you're not going to cook it. But the most important thing is as chefs, we have this voice. How do we bring these ingredients back and also bringing in farmers? Well, I think us as chefs, it's our responsibility to educate ourselves about these ingredients, first and foremost, because the more we educate ourselves, the more we're even able to educate farmers and the consumers out there to say, look, we want these ingredients. Can you grow these ingredients for us? If we as chefs create the demand, the farmers will grow the ingredients. So for me, it's educating ourselves, number one, and then including these ingredients in our menus, in our seasonal and local menus. That's what we need to be doing. Because the moment you understand what millet is and the moment you understand what bambara nut is, what it is, and you eat it and you taste it and you understand that it's actually a bean, you're able to then be creative as a chef. So my whole thing is educate yourself about these ingredients so that you can incorporate them and make them sexy and make them these awesome products that they are and make them shine. So we as chefs really need to educate ourselves because only through education can we then be creative because you can't create something you know nothing about and you don't even understand what it's made of, what its components are. But the moment you educate yourself and you understand how it's grown and its value in the cycle, in the food system, then you understand how you as a chef can then make it shine and then incorporate these in our, our menus like we do with all the other interesting and awesome ingredients out there like quinoa and you know what I'm saying, all these amazing 
um, ingredients that are good for us. We also have our own here in Africa, in South Africa, that are local, that are cheap, that are available, that can be accessed by a lot of people at a very good price. Try and make those sexy. Try and make those things accessible and easy to make so people more, more and more people can experiment with them. So education and then bringing them into our kitchens is the key factor here. Absolutely. I love that. I love the fact that we need to educate ourselves and then you're able to then create different dishes using these ingredients. And I think the time is now. People are waiting for it. People are talking about African ingredients, African food, wanting to discover more. So as chefs, based on this beautiful continent, I think it's only the right thing to do to forge ahead in in putting these ingredients forward. Exactly. That's the only way we as African chefs, it's up to us. We must take the baton and we must be the ones to talk about our ingredients. We mustn't be told by other people who've already seen the value and are now ahead of us. And they're creating all these awesome dishes um, with our ingredients and we're still lagging behind because all that shows is that we're ignorant. And I don't think any of us chefs, African chefs, uh, I mean, Africa has got such amazing chefs. It's got amazing, amazing food, people who are doing incredible things. And all we need is just that access to knowledge and education so we can really make our ingredients shine. Um, And that's what's important. We can't expect other people to make our ingredients shine. We need to bring our authentic voice into to the circle and speak on authority uh, with regards to our ingredients. Absolutely. Chef Mahari, thank you so much. Such great insights. And we can't wait to see how we keep pushing the African agenda when it comes to produce and ingredients forward. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Lona. I thoroughly enjoy chatting to you. It's always so much fun. It's now time for our second interview today with Chef Vanshika Bhatia. Vanshika is the co-owner of Together at 12, a restaurant in Gurugram, India, where she blends ingredients based on seasonal cuisines, including Italian, Nordic, modern and progressive Indian. Chef Vanshika originally began using cooking as a medium of stress relief during her studies and has since worked under top chefs in many celebrated restaurants. Combining her culinary learnings and experience growing up in her family home in Kanpur, Vanshika has connected the French culinary techniques from Le Cordon Bleu in London to the way her mother and grandmother cooked at home to elevate local ingredients into Michelin star experiences. Recently, Chef Vanshika has been a key part of the Act Now Climate Change, the United Nations global call to individual action on climate change, aiming to educate and encourage individual behavioral changes by adjusting consumption patterns. Welcome to the podcast, Chef. It's absolutely amazing to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Now, your restaurant is called Together at 12. Now, the number 12 representing the floor the restaurant is on, but I believe there's something special happening on the ground floor. Can you share with us what exactly is happening? So I do have a restaurant called Together at 12 and it is, we serve whatever we can get from the farmers over there and whatever is in season. And we're doing something similar on the ground floor, but it is smaller and it is a cafe, which with a very limited menu, which is hyper local and hyper seasonal. Sounds amazing. Now, I really love the way you design your menu. So once you've heard what your farmers have for you to cook with, as unfortunately it happens the other way around 
with normal chefs. Given the glorious bounty of produce in India, your supplies must have the most incredible food for you to experiment with us, particularly millet. Tell us about that. Yes, I, I feel really lucky to be in India and from India. And I have some really special farmers who are promoting urban agriculture, which is a really important cause. And I love getting produce from them. So, so they send me a list once a week and tell me what is available and what is in excess that needs to be used. And I kind of plan my ordering and my menu accordingly. Talking about millets, there is one particular farmer who gives you a, the supply on order. For example, if I need some special flour, which is a mix of a couple different types of millets or like something like a pearl barley, which needs to be rolled by hand. So she takes order a week before or two weeks before and she gives me the perfect produce on the day that I need it. And the, the farmers are doing something really amazing by preserving all of these um, different types of millets and biodiversity. The quality of a produce must be quite amazing, right? Uh, yes, definitely, because it is all grown without chemicals and uh, they use a lot of old school techniques of what used to be uh, used in farming years ago and they are trying to preserve seeds and ancient grains and all of that so they're educated farmers and they've studied about everything that is there to do with agriculture they've done courses and they're working really hard and give the best quality produce that there is now, kheer is an Indian dessert normally made with rice, correct? Could you tell us about it? Because I believe that you prefer to use millet. So kheer is a rice pudding, but a little bit more liquidy than classic rice pudding. I have been eating that since my childhood and I really love that. But what my mom does sometimes is she makes it with barnyard millet and lotus seeds, which come under the Future 50 of, of superfood list and is extremely nutritious and also very tasty because of the texture of the millet. Since rice can become really soft and really gluggy, uh, this doesn't happen with the millet. It holds its shape, but still becomes a little soft. And I love the texture and the flavor of the kheer with barnyard millet. That's amazing. It sounds so delicious. So next time I come to India, you need to promise me at least let me taste that, right? Yes, definitely. It's really aromatic and very flavorful. I think the beautiful thing with having a podcast like this is that we're able to connect with chefs from around the world and hear different stories on different produce and how produce is farmed in those countries. What words do you have for chefs in you know using the different variety of millets on their plates i think the chefs should really bring in their skill and their training of working with different types of ingredients and uh, try to work with all of these millets which are very good for your health and for the health of the planet it can get a little tricky to work with them but the amount of flavor and the texture that you can add to your food is absolutely amazing. I even made a barley ice cream where I roasted the barley really almost before it burns and then added dairy and made an ice cream out of it and guests reviewed it as addictive. So I think there's a lot of hidden flavors that we can find and experiment with. And I really do encourage chefs um, around me and in my team also uh, to experiment and use their skill to get these ingredients in focus um, so that the demand increases and the production increases because they're really good for the soil. 
Absolutely. Now, beyond chefs, you have home cooks, you have influencers, you have foodies that also love to experience with different produce. What would you say to them in not using the average ingredients that are easier to find, for example, at a store or at the market, but that are these hidden gems like millet, like, for example, sweet potato? How do we then kind of make it sexy for them so that they are able to influence their small communities, whether it's on social media or it's within their families? Yeah, I think that is a a very important question as we need to make things trendy. And especially because of the millennial generation, they follow things that are trends and they follow things that are on social media. So we need to make up really cool recipes and put it up on social media. For example, making a ragi sardo or a ragi pizza, even like something like the ice cream that I mentioned. And it's really important to make things very interesting and make pasta dough out of it and it's all possible there's nothing that is impossible so i think influencing uh, home cooks because they also have a really huge market especially in corona times Uh, people are trusting home cooks a lot because they feel like they're cooking in their house and it's hygienic so they should also experiment and make their own food all they need to do is just replace one ingredient for example a lentil or a rice with a different type of millet and just see how the recipe comes out and i'm very positive that it will be super delicious i think the key here is just exploring and trying out different things now you sound like you are very busy and have the most amazing future ahead of you what can we look forward to in the near future I think that people are becoming very health conscious, especially during these times. And this is the time that we really push ourselves and really push the market to experiment with new ingredients and add more and more of these ingredients to our menus. So eventually I'm going to move still making comfort food naming them the same as they are. For example, a lasagna is a lasagna, a burger is a burger. But the ingredients that are put inside that, I'm trying to do those as, you know, using millet flowers or using it in the burger patty or something like that, different types of leaves, which are really biodiverse, grape leaves and roselle leaves, hibiscus leaves, all of these things, uh, jute leaves um, in a salad or in uh, our main dish, uh, just sautéing them so that it is more flavorful, more interesting and definitely more healthy. Oh, sounds amazing, Vanchika. I can't wait to see what the future has in store for you. This has been such an insightful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation and I can't wait to talk more about all of this and cook with really interesting ingredients. I'm definitely coming for that ice cream. I haven't forgotten. Lastly, it's my absolute pleasure and privilege to introduce to you our expert for today's episode on millets, Dr. Shivali Sharma, who is joining us from Hyderabad in India. Dr. Sharma is a theme leader for the pre-breeding at ICRI SAT's headquarters and with a rich postdoctoral research experience of more than 15 years, is responsible for pre-breeding research on pearl millets, chickpeas, pigeon peas, and ground nuts. 
In her work, Dr. Sharma is led by her passion for innovative research to help make agriculture a profitable enterprise for smallholder farmers and to create a better food future for all of us. It's a great pleasure to be able to talk to you today, Dr. Sharma. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, just to kick things off, can you tell us a little about what you do in your field of expertise, which is millets? So I've worked as theme leader for pre-breeding at Icrisat. And the main objective of this theme is to access the novel genes from unexploited sources such as crop wild relatives and exotic land races to create new and diverse genetic variability for morphological and agronomic traits, nutrition-related traits, as well as to enhance the level of resistance and tolerance to important biotic and abiotic stresses in the present-day crop cultivars. So by doing this, we ensure continuous supply of new and diverse genetic variability into the breeding pipeline, which will help the breeders to develop new climate-smart varieties with a broad genetic base. Uh, especially in pearl millet, we have developed integration lines with improved tolerance to heat, which is an important abiotic stress, as well as with high level of resistance to five different pathotypes of blast. In pearl millet, blast is an emerging disease which adversely affects pearl millet production and productivity in all pearl millet growing areas. So by using blast-resistant wild species, Penicetum violaceum in crossing program, integration lines with improved resistance uh, to blast have been developed. And very soon, these lines will be shared with the pearl millet breeding programs in India and other countries for use in breeding programs to develop new varieties. So this is what we do in this thing. Sounds absolutely amazing. Now, championing millets, of course, on menus across the globe will help small-scale farmers quite a bit. Can you explain how this can be done and why it's so important? I will say including pearl millet and menos across the globe will benefit both the producers and consumers, and it will ensure food and nutritional security. Compared to other major cereal crops such as wheat, rice, maize, and sorghum, pearl millet is more nutritious and offers gluten-free grains with high content and better quality of protein, vitamins, antioxidants, and essential micronutrients such as iron and zinc, and more balanced essential amino acid profile compared to maize or sorghum. So because of its high nutritional value, pearl millet is also known as nutri-grain or high-energy cereal. So including millet in daily diets will provide several health benefits, uh, such as controlling diabetes. Because of its high fiber content, it tends to digest slowly. So it releases uh, glucose at a slower rate as compared to other foods. And thus it helps in maintaining healthy blood sugar levels. Not only this, pearl millet is rich in fiber content that improves digestion and it curbs hunger for a long time and thus it plays an important role in weight loss. Not only this, pearl millet also helps in reducing cholesterol. So it contains phytic acid which is believed to increase cholesterol metabolism. It is also known to have a cancer protecting properties. A study has shown that regular intake of pearl millet protects premenopausal women from developing breast cancer. So there are numerous health benefits. 
Besides this, you know, pearl millet is better adapted to hot and dry conditions and infertile soils than any other major cereal crop. And it is mainly grown by smallholder farmers in Asia and Africa with minimal inputs. So non-traditional uses of pearl millet through new recipes across the globe, especially by highlighting its nutritional and health benefits, will increase its demand and hence new market opportunities for the small-scale farmers to produce more grains. And hence, it will ensure increased income to these farmers. You've mentioned so many amazing health benefits, and I think um, it's important that people know, you know, and and use the the produce and and find creative ways of cooking with it. I think you've highlighted some really important points there. Now, agricultural diversity provides stability for our food systems, right? And if a particular crop is under threat, having access to this diversity is like insurance against unfavorable conditions. Can you talk to this point regarding millet? Success of any crop improvement program, it depends on the presence of sufficient genetic variability. Though pearl millet is better adapted to hot and dry conditions and infertile soils than other cereal crops, as I said, but climate change will expose this crop to more adverse climatic conditions, particularly more severe drought and heat stress. So this drought is the biggest challenge for this crop in the African and Asian ecologies, while heat stress is more pronounced in northwestern India and some western African countries. So as I said, amongst biotic stresses, blast has become an important disease of pearl millet in this decade. So it is therefore essential to increase the drought and heat tolerance levels of current varieties and hybrids together with increasing the level of resistance to blast. Threat posed by these emerging challenges can be tackled by tapping into the novel genes or alleles present in the diverse germplasm. For pearl millet, this diversity is present in genus Penicetum, and it will provide insurance against unfavorable conditions such as emerging abiotic and biotic stresses, especially under changing climatic conditions, and will help to develop new climate-smart varieties. These research endeavors will improve the cultivation of pearl millet in traditional and non-traditional areas and will definitely increase the production and productivity of this crop in the arid and semi-arid regions. I enjoy millet in various ways and I love how it kind of absorbs any flavor or different spices, ingredients that you could use to make it absolutely delicious. But Shivalu, what is your absolute favorite way to enjoy a delicious plate of millet? Yeah, so we start our day with pearl millet salad for which, you know, I use boiled pearl millet grains, add a lot of grains, vegetables and sprouts and some Indian spices. So this is the salad, which is one of my favorites. And evening snacks also, we would like to take roasted pearl millet as well as pearl millet cookies. So these are some of the things which we usually consume at home. Briefly tell us what would be in the pearl millet cookies because that sounds really, really interesting. Uh, yeah, so I have not baked them myself, but in that we have excellent bakery. So they are baking pearl millet cookies as well as nowadays uh, they are making pearl millet breads. 
and pizza bases. So there are a number of things which we can, you know, we request them and they are trying to make different delicious recipes by using pearl millet. Finally, do you have a message for chefs who are looking to engage with a more diverse range of foods such as millets in their kitchens, on their plates, and also just educating the public, particularly, you know, there's a rise of obviously social media influences and the digital space. What encouraging words do you have for them? You know, for chefs, I will say the changing dietary habits of the people is the most challenging task. And it is an important factor which will determine the importance of a crop as a major or a minor crop. So chefs need to come out with uh, the new recipes for millet in different categories, such as, you know, there could be the recipes for snacks, starters, main courses, soups, etc. So there are a number of ways pearl millet can be used. But then these recipes must be easy to cook. Nowadays, you know, there is a short of time for us to spend in kitchen. So when I say easy to cook, it should be both in terms of time, must take less time for cooking and the ingredients also like for example the minimum ingredients whatever is available in the common households so and can be if those dishes can be stored for a few days or weeks so nowadays people are more conscious for their health but time is a major limiting factor in cooking healthy food on daily basis so chefs can provide new recipes by including a combination of millets with pulses especially which will provide more balanced diet to the people around the world Further, chefs will play an important role in increasing the acceptance of the crop among end users. That's what I think. As I said, the bottom line is that chefs need to develop recipes which are easy to cook with less simple ingredients available commonly in most kitchens, must take less time and with minimum nutritional losses during cooking. So the importance of pearl millet is very high, especially from the nutrition point of view. And when we combine these millets with vegetables and pulses, they provide the balanced diets. So I think people must use this pearl millet on a daily basis to curb the malnutrition problem, which is common in the smallholder farmers. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Shivali. This was so insightful and I hope people have learned something and will go out into their kitchens or at home and really try this beautiful produce called millet. Thank you so much. Crop diversity is essential for life on earth. It underpins nearly everything we eat and drink. Throughout the history of agriculture, farmers have generated a seemingly endless diversity within crops, discovering ingenious solutions to local challenges. Meanwhile, many of the wild relatives of these crops have also persisted in nature, adapting to tough environments as well. Crop diversity allows farmers to feed the world, but this diversity is disappearing, and once lost, it's lost forever. Everyone has a role to play in safeguarding biodiversity in our precious planet and in working towards achieving good food for all. The Chef's Manifesto in Thematic Area 2 encourages and guides chefs across the world to do the same and lead by examples in their kitchens, restaurants and communities. 
And that's all for episode five of Chef's Manifesto podcast season three, produced in collaboration with Crop Trust and Food Forever. I'm your host, Chef Lorna Masego, and I hope you've enjoyed the conversations as much as I have. Please subscribe to our channels, rate and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation will really help us boost our reach. We want to talk to and engage with as many chefs as possible from all around the world and talk to sustainability and strengthen our global movement of chefs at the forefront of change. Thank you so much for listening. There are eight thematic areas. Ingredients grown with respect to the earth, friendly to oceans, protection of biodiversity and improved animal welfare, investment in livelihoods, value natural resources and reduce waste. Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary. Waste is criminal. A celebration of local and seasonal food. A focus on plant-based ingredients. Education on food safety. And healthy diets. Nutritious food that is accessible, accessible and affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians. Suppliers. Farmers. Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. <laughs> <laughs>